Thank you. Good morning and welcome to each one. It's good to be here with you. Really enjoyed the service so far. And uh, it's just good to see some familiar faces that uh, have been gone for a while. Courtney, it's good to see you. Ayana, it was a surprise to see you. Did I see Ayana? Yeah, there you No, where is she? There you are. I thought your sister and you look too much alike. So um, it's good to see you and your family here. And um, I was, uh, Kermit had given a book or talked about a book the other night, Wednesday night. Uh, and it was from the uh, person that sort of uh, was at least part of the instigator of the boys' camps that Courtney is involved in. And um, I believe it was uh, Martin, uh, what's his first name? Um, Brian Martin from uh, Allegheny Boys' Camp there that gave it to the church here because of having had three young men out at three uh, separate uh, Voice camps, and so I've been really enjoying that uh, that book. Once I'm finished, I'll bring it back and pass along. It's been some uh, interesting reads there, and uh, sort of gives the uh, the beginnings of uh, that concept of uh, of uh, camps. Well, it hardly seems uh, it hardly seems uh, true that it's been four months already that I uh, uh, have first started the series Strengthening Families series and um, uh, just because of the schedule the way it has been uh, I only preached the one message sort of laid the foundation that time and um, and we've had uh, the church camp and we had communion in between there and, and several other things that uh, just uh, didn't follow through with um, but I do want to come back to it this morning. And um, I've entitled the message, Suffer the Children, obviously taken from the text in Mark chapter 10, which we'll be looking at. And um, the, the, the first message that I preached, we had gone back to Genesis to lay the foundation uh, for Christian families. And... Uh, we, uh, we, we, uh, when we looked at that text there in Genesis, we looked at five reasons why God established the one man, one woman conjugal family. And I don't know if anybody can recall, it's a long way back there to reach back there, and I know that there's quite a few visitors here this morning as well. But maybe just to give you a reminder of what those were, the first one was to give a glimpse of the Trinity. I think marriages, I think one man, one woman marriage uh, gives a, uh, a reflection of the two parts of God or the, the two, the, maybe the, uh, the, uh, the, the warrior spirit of God and the mercy spirit of God. Uh, it also uh, was there that we found that we are to be symbols of himself on the earth um, and then also that we are to be fruitful and multiply, like the passage in Genesis says, to fill the earth and subdue it, and to have dominion over creation. And we see how that the push and the agenda for so much of today in the breakdown of marriages goes directly opposed, it directly opposes many of these reasons. 
And so this morning, I want to look at the part uh, of uh, man's idea versus God's idea of uh, children. Now, I know that some of what I want to share this morning can be maybe a bit controversial, and I certainly don't mean to come across that way in any, in any way. And, you know, sometimes when some of these subjects are talked about, we can't necessarily go to a thus saith the Lord passage of Scripture. And so we look at principles in Scripture, and that's what we want to look at this morning, some principles in Scripture on what, how, God, how man has had the idea of, and their view of, of, of children and families, and of course what God's idea is, and conclude with that. Well, the text that we find ourselves in Matthew or in Mark chapter 10, if you want to turn to that, Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, we find the setting where Jesus is leaving the northern regions of Galilee, that would be on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and he, particularly in the area of Capernaum, and he's heading down south towards Jerusalem for his final journey towards Jerusalem. But on the way, he crosses to the east side of the Jordan, like it says, that, uh, in the, that he was in the uh, region of, uh, of Judea, by the other side of the Jordan. And uh, verse 1 of chapter 10, it says that, um, that uh, when he arose from there and came to the region of uh, Judea, by the other side of the Jordan, a multitude gathered <coughs> to him again. And as he was accustomed, he taught them again. So we see that it was his custom to teach and to disciple people. And, uh, of course, that was part of his um, ministry here for the three and a half years that uh, he was on, on the earth as a teacher. It was here that people tested Jesus. It says that they tested him and they questioned him concerning the issue of divorce. And of course, Jesus not only teaches against the divorce, but he, he takes it a step further, and he addresses the wrong in remarriage in the case of, of divorce. And so, interestingly enough, that's the context in which our text this morning takes place. So maybe just for a change of position, why don't we stand to read the passage in Mark chapter 10, verse 13 through 16. Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the children come to me. And do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for these words. And I pray that you would rightly divide these words to our hearts Help us to receive them and to learn from them and to grow by them. May you be glorified and our hearts edified. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Jesus' 
busy teaching the crowds. He's been, uh, that's been his, his life the last almost three and a half years. And of course, the crowds are pressing in on them. And it says that they, I'm not entirely sure who they is. I'm just guessing the parents that were there in the crowd. They brought their children to Jesus and they wanted their children to touch him or for him to touch their children. And I'm not exactly sure what the these parents for them to want Jesus to touch them. Uh, perhaps it was the compassion that filtered out from him that caused them to want to have their children touched by Jesus. But the disciples, when they saw it, were not pleased. They rebuked the parents for bringing the children, for bothering the children. They rebuked him for that. He had much more important matters than children that was going on. And uh, children should be, should be seen but not, but, uh, not heard, right? And, uh, but when Jesus saw it, it says that he was greatly displeased. He was greatly displeased. And he in turn rebuked the disciples in a sense and rather invites the children to come to him. Uh, Jesus understood that there's a dynamic connection between the ways of the kingdom and the responses of a child. And so he responded to them, suffer, I think as the King James uses the word suffer, the little children to come to me. And I just want to pause right there because that's a term in the, in the old English language that we hardly use today, but it simply means allow or let. Allow the children to come or let the children come to me and uh, do not uh, hold them back. And when we think about children, there are certain traits about children that I think are a connection to what Jesus saw when he talked about the kingdom and the child. Children have a level of trust and sincerity that often isn't found in adults. Found enough as adults to have maybe a little bit of defense in us. And we're not quite as trusting as children. We have that buffer in us that just sort of holds back a little bit. But children, they have no inhibitions. They're just, they're just, they just are who they are. They haven't been, they haven't experienced maybe some of the, uh, the uh, rebuff that we as adults have experienced. Children also have the ability to forgive and uh, not harbor resentment. They, uh, they are quick to overlook a wrong. I, it's amazing how, how quickly a wrong can be forgotten with a child. I don't know if I've used this example or not, but I remember as a little boy, when Austin was just a little boy, probably about two years old, he was, uh, he was, in a, uh, he was up on the counter with, with Glad, and of course, she was doing some preparation there in the kitchen. She had opened a can, a tin can. Maybe I've used this example. I don't know. She opened a can, and you know, like when you've almost opened the, 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 the lid, why it, it falls inside. Well, she had emptied the can. The, the, the lid was inside, and he, and he put his finger in, in the can, and when he pulled it out, 
it just laid open his finger. I mean, it's just, it took three stitches, and boy, I was feeling bad, and of course, Glad was feeling bad, and I was sort of making a fuss about it there at the doctor's office, and, the, and old Doc Graber, he looked at me, he says, he says, hey, look, children forget pain very quickly, and I just remember how that impacted me. I thought, wow, wouldn't it be good if we as adults could forget like children do? Well, they also love unbiasedly and uh, innocently. And that's just something that, that is very uh, a, carat- a, a trait of, of a child where they love uh, very easily. Uh, their total dependence on others and eagerness to please is not found in, uh, in, in adults. And so Jesus affirms that the kingdom of God is received with equal traits. Since Jesus is the king of his kingdom, he understood these principles or, or the principles that operate under his kingdom and that they're built on the same kind of, of the same foundation. Trust, forgiveness, love, dependency. These are all things that are needed in order to participate in his kingdom. And so he, he, he used that as an example to the disciples and to the crowd uh, of why children are important and what kind of lesson that they teach us. And just to make sure that they got the message that he was trying to get across, he demonstrated his care for the children by wrapping them in his arms and, and laying his hands on them and blessing them. That was a uh, trait of a Hebrew uh, when they would bless, a father would bless a child. Those traits were always involved, laying a hand on them, speaking to them, and blessing them. And, uh, and so the question I would propose to you this morning, the question that, that we want to grapple with today is, is the message, is this the message that prevails in our society today? And I'm talking particularly in the American culture. Is this the message that is prevalent in our culture? When we think of the all-American family, is this promoted? The all-American family has a philosophy that promotes mom and dad and two, possibly three children, and uh, certainly four is a crowd. According to a June 2007 Gallup poll, it finds that the average American believes that the ideal number of children for a family to have these days is 2.5. And uh, we see a lot of bumper stickers around that give messages that the idea that Jesus had, God's idea of children is quite different from man's idea of children. The uh, poll that uh, was taken there includes that that 56% of Americans who think it is best to have a small uh, family of one or two and no more, uh, that 56% of Americans think that way, and 34% think uh, that it is ideal to have a, a, a bit larger family of uh, three or a few more. The idea of having six to eight children or more is almost unthinkable today in modern society. 
in this modern uh, world. And uh, this has not always been the case. Um, and I would just like to, for, for the sake of, of interest, uh, just do a little experiment this morning. And I'd like for everyone here who was, who was born in a family or more children to raise your hand. If you were born in a family, look, at, look, at, look around. Four more children, all right? Those who were in five or more, keep raising your hand. Six or more, okay, some more going down. Seven or more, all right? Look around, there's still hands up there. Eight or more. Nine or more, okay, there's still some. Ten or more, still a few. Eleven or more, a couple more go down. Twelve or more, and thirteen or more. Wow, two of them in here that, had, were, that grew up in a family of at least twelve children. And uh, so we can see that that's not always been the case. Now, I, I, I've, I mentioned before that this, uh, some of what I want to share is, is, can be very sensitive. I will be careful. I, I want to be sensitive to the subject in more ways than one. But I especially want to be sensitive to the families who, for whatever reason, are either not able to bear children or who are limited to the amount of children that they have due to reasons outside of their control. And I certainly don't intend in any way to rub, to rub salt into, a, into an open wound. Uh, that is not my intent at all, and I certainly don't want to add any kind of guilt or shame to a broken heart in that way. But please hear me out. I'm referring to an attitude that purposely and selfishly uh, limits the blessing of children. To me, that's vastly different. Something, uh, a situation that is between the two. So that's what we're looking at. The question we need to ask is whether the all-American uh, uh, family ideal has negatively shaped our concept of family. Uh, and is this ideology uh, counterproductive to God's idea of when he said, be fruitful and multiply the earth? Now, again, my intent this morning is not to try to determine what size your family should be. That's not the point at all. But rather, what I'm, what I'm wanting to do is to push against an idea or an attitude that stems out of selfishness. That's what I want to push against. I think we be very careful and think through critically that we don't put ourselves in the place of God by using man's techniques or devices to prevent pregnancy. The all-American family ideal fosters a mentality that promotes pleasure without responsibility. And that, to me, is fundamentally wrong. Woven into the fabric of creation uh, is a law of harvest. And that means that the free will of man, 
or the ability to have the, 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 the capability of making choice, uh, being able to choose, will typically require responsibility from the part of the recipient. Consummation in marriage carries responsibility. And by the way, it's just as important on the side of not overwhelming a mother with a size family that, can, that she can hardly handle. Uh, God's idea of be fruitful, multiply, gives latitude for personal discipline. So balance and responsibility uh, goes both directions. But you see, the thing that I'm pushing against, again, is the deal that with, with man's agenda tends to skirt responsibility. Grandpa Adam did it within minutes. It first sinned. The first thing he did is blame God for giving Eve to him. In fact, this is what he said. He said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And ever since that time, man wants the liberties that come with the freedom to choose, but often shirk or defer the responsibilities that come with it. And that, by the way, is the whole agenda. Is the whole agenda with the public school system and their push for sex education. You see, the question is no longer, is fornication wrong? That's not even the question any longer. It's how can we prevent pregnancies from happening? The assumption is that every youth will be involved in fornication. That's the assumption. So let's get back to what scripture. You see, if we follow the scriptures and we believe that fornication is wrong, we don't have to educate our children on how to prevent pregnancy. Let's get back to what scripture teaches. And so again, the attitude that I'm pushing against is a selfishness that limits what God considers to be a blessing. It's easy for us to conform and bend to the general philosophy of society around us. And yet, let's just think through a little bit where that has brought us. In January 27. 1973, I was nine years old, a landmark decision was made by the U.S. Supreme Court on the issue of Roe versus Wade. That decision came simultaneously with a companion case called Doe versus Bolton when the courts ruled seven to two that the right to privacy under the due process clause of the 14th Amendment extended a woman's decision to have an abortion. And we can scarcely fathom the far-reaching effects of that decision, of that, of that pivotal decision 42 years later. Listen to some of the statistics that just, is, to me, is mind-boggling. Worldwide, now I know that this doesn't affect Roe versus Wade, but worldwide today, 42 million abortions worldwide every year. That breaks down to approximately 115,000 every day. Puts a little bit more in perspective. Worldwide, 115,000 abortions daily worldwide. In the U.S., according to a 2005 survey, and that's 10 years ago, 
There are approximately 1.2 million abortions in the U.S. each year. 1.2 million. U.S. is among one of the highest uh, counts of abortion uh, in any kind of developed country. Now, 1.5 million is a little bit hard for us to break down, so let's break it down to a day. That's approximately 3,437 abortions daily. Or another way to look at it, it's almost one out of every four pregnancies. 22% of the pregnancies end in, in abortion. 50% of women now seeking abortion have had at least one previous abortion. Approximately one-third. If there would be 75 women here this morning, it would represent 25 of you. That's hard for me to believe or to wrap my mind around, but approximately one-third of American women have had an abortion by age 45. One-third. And possibly the most grieving of all these statistics is what I want to share next. Women identifying themselves as Protestant obtain 43% of all abortions in the U.S. 43% from women who say they are Protestants. Catholic women account for about 27%, which was a little surprising. Jewish women account for 1.3. Now I realize that the the ratio of Jewish women uh, versus uh, Protestant or evangelical or no faith or other kinds of faith are probably quite a bit different. But I find it interesting that the Jewish community has such a low rate. But listen to this one. Women with no religious affiliation account for 24% of the abortions. Isn't that isn't that something that Protestant women account for almost double those who, who claim no kind of religion affiliation? And probably the saddest one of all is that 18% of all abortions are performed on women who identify themselves as born again or evangelical. That would fit us right here. 18%. Isn't that a sad day? A genocidal atrocity of this nature typically begins with an activity of a much lesser severity. Think about that. In other words, a groundwork was laid long before abortion was permitted in this country. Could it be, and I'm asking the question, could it be that the groundwork was laid with the push for Planned Parenthood that came with the idea of the all-American family? It is nigh impossible for the all-American family ideal to be achieved without some degree of mechanical intervention. And when I say mechanical intervention, I'm just talking about anything that man would do to prevent a pregnancy. And I propose a question to us this morning. Is there a difference between actual, an actual abortion or mechanically preventing a pregnancy? Now, initially, you'd probably say, absolutely, there is. 
And you probably make a difference, or you may make a difference, between actually taking a life or preventing a life from developing. Yet, did Jesus separate lust from adultery? The action from the attitude. And uh, my point is just that a sinful attitude takes root long before the action is executed. And so I just, I just want us to think very, very critically about this whole subject. I know it's something that we don't talk a lot about. And it's probably, I don't think I've ever heard it taught across the pulpit. But I'm, I'm, I felt led that uh, I, I think it's something that we need to discuss simply because of what society around pushes us and conforms us to think about. Steps in that direction may include putting myself in control of our family size. Think of how different history would be written if the following parents would have espoused the all-American ideal. Let's start out with some music composers. Bach was the eighth child of, of a family of eight. Mozart, seventh of seven children. Beethoven, five of, uh, fifth of five. Uh, Schumann, fifth of five. Offenbach, seventh of ten. Uh, Moskorsky, Mus- Mus- eleventh of eighteen. Uh, Caruso, eighteenth of twenty-one. I'm just stretching your minds a little bit here, okay? Far, sixth of six. Steinway, the person that developed the Steinway piano, seventh of seven children. Copeland, fifth of five. Handel's dad was 63 years old when he was born. So, men. Eight other composers from five or more children. Uh, and there's some others that you probably are not as familiar with. Let's think of, of some of the U.S. presidents. Oh, George Washington was the fifth of ten children. William Harrison, seventh of seven children. John Tyler, sixth of eight children. Zachary Taylor, sixth of eight children. Pierce, seventh of eight. Uh, Rutherford Hayes, fifth of five. Garfield, fifth of five. Chester Arthur, fifth of nine. Grover Cleveland, fifth of nine. Benjamin Harris, fifth of 13. Uh, William McKinley, seventh of nine. And Taft was seventh of 10. And of course, there's five other families with five or more children, not all necessarily in that, uh, in, in, as a birth order, uh, uh, as we saw before. Think about some history greats that we think about. If, and just keep thinking about it. If, if these parents would have espoused the all-American ideal, how many of these would we have record of? None, right? Uh, Bonhoeffer, eighth of eight children. David Brainerd came from a family of nine. We're not quite sure where he fit into that uh, family, but five uh, or nine family. Oswald Chambers, fourth of nine children. Jonathan Edwards, 11th of 11 children. Charles Finney, 7th of 7 children. Uh, Dwight Moody, 6th of 8. 
Sylvanus Crosby was the granddad of Fanny Crosby. He was the 19th of 19 children. Nate Saint, uh, seventh of eight. John and Charles Wesley, they were the fourth and the 17th uh, out of 19 children. Uh, Corey Ten Boom, the, the woman that, that freed many Jewish people during the time of Hitler and as a result uh, ended up in a concentration camp, was tortured mercilessly uh, for many years uh, because of her faith. Fifth of five children. Benjamin, <laughs> the son of Jacob, 13th of 13 children. And you know, if, if we wouldn't have Benjamin today, we wouldn't have the because the apostle Paul was, was of the lineage of Benjamin. So think of how that affects history. Uh, David, from Scripture, 8 of 8, and we wouldn't have a book. And we would, would we have a Jesus? Jesus was also from the lineage of David. Uh, Joseph was the 12th of 13. And, of course, there's Amzi, who was the 7th of 11. And there's May, the 6th of 12. And there's James, the sixth or the fifth of six, and that's not because we're history greats. But I just put that in there to think through of how many of us our 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 our, our stories would be written different had our parents espoused the all-American ideal. And so I'm just wanting to stretch your minds away from the pressures of society around us and get back to the principles of what Jesus on how God looks at this. And I want to just pause the, uh, the, the push the pause button right now too, just for a moment, and, and recognize that abortion is a big deal. It is a big sin. It is wrong. And, uh, but I would also uh, like to declare that abortion is a forgivable sin. God's grace can be extended to someone who has, who has carried out this wrong. And should there be anyone here this morning that has, uh, carries the guilt of, of, of having been involved in this, uh, I would want you to hear the message that God's grace is extended to you. And you can be forgiven. And you can be free of the guilt of that wrong. Uh, so just for whatever that's worth, I want to share that. I'd like to, in closing, turn back to Psalm 127 and just look at three concluding thoughts, three concluding statements from the passage in Psalm 127. I'm going to break in uh, in verse 3. Psalm 127, starting in verse 3, it says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gates." Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. And the first statement I would like to conclude with is that children are God's gift 
to parents, and not just to parents. It's God's gift to the church. It's God's gift to society. Children are God's gift to humanity. Heritage has the idea of something inherited or an heirloom. Now, we have in our home a little wooden step stool with a leather seat that I bought at my grandma's sale uh, way back just soon after, maybe even before we were married. And even though it has been repaired numerous times, it's still rickety and, and really not all that nice looking. Uh, uh, and even though we haven't tried to sell it, if we were to try to sell it, it probably would not have a lot of uh, monetary uh, value to it. But it holds a degree of nostalgic value when I think that our three boys and probably even some of our girls sat on the same chair that their grandfather sat on when he was a little boy. So, suddenly value is added uh, because of what it means to us, okay? Now, it, it, now it's, it's, it's ready to be passed on to the fourth generation. And, and the value of this little chair uh, is only to the degree of the fourth generation, of, of, of the, the value that the fourth generation places on it. If, if they don't want it, it really has no value to it, okay? But children are not like this little chair. Their value is not contingent on the degree that people place on it, Rather, it is designed by the master, or it is determined by the master designer who created them. The master designer, the creator, designed them with a soul, and because they have a soul, they have an eternal destiny. And that is what gives them value. Parents, you have been given the gift of shaping a soul for an eternal destiny. Value that gift. Value that gift. Secondly, children are, a, are symbols of strength. Like arrows in the hand of a mighty warrior, so are children of one's youth. In my younger years, <clears throat> I did a bit of archery hunting. And while I certainly don't consider myself to be an expert archer, I know enough about the sport to realize that the arrow or the type of arrow plays a huge role on how well or your success of hitting the target. I also know that arrows left in the quiver only add weight if they're not intended to be used. And so what I would like to propose to you this morning, parents, especially parents of little children, is that your children are an extension of your value and faith. Now, I'll, I'll allow me to clarify what I just said. What you did not hear me say is that we come to faith or we come to Christ as families. That's not what I, what I just said. And, and, and I firmly believe that all individuals come to Christ on their own, by themselves, one at a time. We don't come to Christ as families. However, yet, our faith 
and our values are transmitted or are influenced from one generation to the next. The question you need to ask yourself as parents is, what values are important for me to transfer? Is it important for your children to be considered to be one of the in-group? Well, you're going to parent that way. Is it important for your children to, to wear designer clothes? Guess what? You're going to parent that way. Is it important for, for your children to not face adversity or hard times? Guess what? You're going to protect them that way. Is it important? Is eternal destiny, is the eternal destiny of your child the most important aspect of your parenting? And if it is, guess what? You're going to parent that way. And so I encourage you to think through those things that are important to you. What values you want to transmit and transfer to your children because that's, what, that's the way you parent and that's the values that they will tend to pick up. Lastly, I would like to say that children should be received as God's blessings. Since children are considered a blessing in God's economy, then I would like to declare that in this congregation, we too consider them to be a blessing as well. And since they are a blessing, we consider them to be a blessing, they are welcome to fellowship, uh, to this fellowship of believers. Not only are they, are they welcome, but, they're in, but we encourage you parents to bring them into the auditorium at all parts of the service. There's a reason that we don't have child care, that we don't offer child care. It's because we believe firmly in a family-friendly church. Children are not a bother. In fact, whenever I listen to a message on the web uh, later on throughout the week, I sometimes go and listen to, re-listen to the message that's being preached, and I hear a little baby crying in the background, I thank God that I'm part of a congregation that allows children to be sitting in our auditorium. Yes, parents, not only are they welcome, not only are you welcome to bring your children to, to church, we really, really encourage you to do so. What a joy, what a, what a privilege to have, to have people of all ages in, in, a, in a congregation. We so much enjoy the seniors of our, of, in our midst here. We just believe, I, I think we probably have some of the best out there. I don't know, maybe I'm a little bit biased. <laughs> but we really, really enjoy you seniors. And we value your input, your wisdom, your experience, your support. We really appreciate that. But equally grateful is the fact that we have toddlers in this congregation as well. This gives us hope for a future. Uh, for someone to carry on the work of the church for tomorrow. It's a sad day when young families are missing from a congregation. And so we just want to reiterate to you this, this morning, young families, we are so delighted to have you here, and we welcome you, and we're very, well, we, we just uh, open our hearts to you. We desire your presence. I also just want to close with a word of encouragement to you parents. Just a word, a personal word from, from me to you. And that is just that, 
that I realized that parenting takes a lot of work. And it takes a lot of energy. Depending on the amount of children and the age of the children, it can sometimes be downright exhausting. But my encouragement to you is just to take heart and to hang in there and realize that this this season of your life will pass very quickly. Uh, Treasure each moment. Don't forget to thank God continually that he has graced you with these little blessings. There are many parents and or couples who would long to have even one child or more children than what they have. They would gladly lose some sleep and give up energy to hold their own little bundle in their arms. So again, I would just encourage you parents, as God has blessed you with children, to take your time, give your time selflessly and your energy selflessly. And remember, according to this verse in verse 5, it says, happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. I also like to draw your attention to the last part of that verse, in verse 5 there, where it says, they shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Children have the ability to break down barriers that are typically too big for, for adults to cross. Young, young parents, you, you hold in your hands an occasion to, to represent Christ with your family that breaks down barriers. That happened to us repeatedly with our young family. Many times we had the opportunity to witness and to share uh, with unbelievers because they were, they were drawn to us and they, they, they initiated the conversation with us. They started with our family. They talked about our family, our children, and it gave us the ability to talk about our faith with them. Use that, use that opportunity. Use that opportunity to speak of Christ to others. Children break down that barrier. Take advantage of that opportunity. Well, I'm going to close with that. I trust that you've, uh, you've uh, learned and that you've received from that. Uh, I, I, would, uh, li- I would cover your prayers as I've been looking forward to the next uh, message. Uh, I would like to, he- uh, to, to share a message that I have personally never shared on. And I, as I was thinking about it, I, I, I don't think I've ever heard a message preached on it. And I would like to address the whole thing of the barrenness of a woman. If God believes that children are a blessing, why are there barren women? And so we'd like to talk about that. Believe that there's some principles in Scripture that we can draw from that uh, speak into that matter. Let's pray, and I'm going to give Keith the time to, uh, to close. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your kindness, your goodness, your love and mercy. We are grateful for every child that is represented here this morning and that attends here regularly. Lord, thank you for letting them be in our midst. And uh, as we learn from them as adults, their love, their trust, their dependability, and uh, their innocence, Lord, we ask that we would be like those children in our responses to other people. Direct us, keep us, give the parents in this auditorium wisdom as they raise and instruct and teach their children, their families in your ways. Help us not to conform to the pressures of society around us, but to, to, to hear from you. 
In your name we pray. Amen.